A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to welcome you to the second hour of the show. Also want to mention that uh, we have a couple of fine sponsors we have added to The Brian Hyde Show. They are firesteel.com and also staplesmortgage.com. That's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'll be telling you more about them coming up a little bit later on in the hour. Okay, so last hour I actually spent, I thought, uh, some very well, uh, some very well invested time and effort trying to persuade people, you know what we need to do? We need to reach out to people who don't think the way we do and, you know, have conversations with them. It's not about changing their mind necessarily so much as just let's see if we can all come away a little bit better informed than we were before. Posted an article from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center on my Facebook page and I've kind of been sitting back for the last hour watching what I can only describe as, as World War III on social media unfolding. And it's, it's primarily just a couple of people that are, you know, really going back and forth. But holy cow, I lost count of how many comments have gone back and forth. But let's just say that uh, the Battle of Gettysburg was probably a little less intense than the battle over uh, who's right <laughs> on this particular issue. I'm not sure whether to be flattered or feel a little bit discouraged because it wasn't what I intended. This wasn't what I hoped would happen. But I think it goes to illustrate that, uh, man, once once we allow ourselves to become dug in ideologically, it's tough. It is so tough to to just to let go. And and, and I, this is going to sound kind of strange, but to, to let somebody else be wrong. With the understanding that there's a good possibility you and I might be wrong on certain things as well. And and people should cut us some slack as well. Nobody has cornered the market on truth. Nobody knows for sure everything there is to know. So you're going to get some of them right. You're going to get some of them wrong. But for crying out loud, let's just let's try just a touch of humility. Just a touch. Because if we just sit here and, and just sound off within our little echo chamber and everybody nods thoughtfully. Yes, yes, we all agree. Nobody's really any better for that exchange. Of course, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just saying putting it into practice clearly is is more difficult than, than originally thought, or at least than it appears on the surface. So let's move on here. Let's talk about a couple of other things uh, going on. We're going to talk about in this hour, is 2020 the year that political legitimacy dies? And by the way, it's it's kind of a loaded question because, you know, it's an election year. And so there are people who are going to be like, OK, why would why would this be the year? James Bovard has a terrific essay that breaks down how the refusal of politicians to recognize and abide by the upper limits of their power. In other words, to abide within their legitimate power is creating a crisis of legitimacy. Of course, it's also putting a choice right in front of you and I about what we, what should we do about it? We'll also talk about uh, what modern America has in common with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, 
there's more there than you think. And I never thought that I would see the day where this would be a topic of discussion, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. I'm sure you have seen many different viral videos out there making the rounds on social media. If you are unlucky enough to be confronted by a member of the woke mob, and I mean somebody coming at you with their phone out, you should know you are in danger. They're not doing it just because they think you're cute and, hey, I just wanted to, you know, get some footage of you. Chances are they're coming because they want to provoke a confrontation with you and you will be the bad guy. And I have an article I'm going to share with you about the safest course of action to take when the woke mob comes after you, phone in hand, trying to uh, to stir something up. You got to be really careful. And last but not least, we're going to talk about how politicians get away with implementing policies that cause provable harm. But, of course, they get away with it because they say, hey, my intentions were good, and that's what you should judge me on. My intentions, not my outcomes. Let's start by opening up the phones here. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian. Sam calling. How Hi, are Sam. You? I'm well. Good. Um, where I weigh in on this whole thing that Mike Meharry was talking about is there is... I mean, I'll do this to some extent, you know, more with a classical liberal than I will with what we call liberals today. In fact, what we call liberals today are not really liberals. Um, Sometimes I think we need to get our terminology straight. I have a problem with trying to reason with people who have to lie to get their agendas through in the first place. Um, It's one thing to have an honest ideology in which I can sit down and discuss that ideology and point out – you know, my issues versus where their issues are coming from and have an honest debate. But if somebody has to lie to get their agenda through, then I have a problem because you're not being honest in the first place. Um, You know, I'm not saying that necessarily everybody in Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, dumbed-down people in that who really think they're fighting for the right cause. But I also have a problem with people who, in these groups, feel they have to destroy private property in order to get what they want, too. That means that there's something wrong with them as far as their moral structure to begin with. Yeah. And my my uh, I, my idea on this whole thing, there's an old saying that says, if you lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. And uh, that's the other thing that we have to uh, be somewhat concerned about in all of this. I'm not saying you don't, you know, I mean, I, I've got a person that listens to our uh, station here locally. She considers herself a liberal. And I don't mind her calling in because I think there's some room there to get, you know, to, uh, I mean, like, for example, you know, she, her biggest problem is, like, for example, around here where we live is there's not enough help for the people who are on low incomes and down and out people. And uh, I hope to have some more uh, conversation with her in the future. But at the same time, she'll talk about how high taxes are and how that's a big problem. Well, the thing we got to remember is that we ask government to help us with anything. That money's going to come from somewhere, and it's going to come out of your paycheck by force. And the bottom line, at the end of the day, where I come down on, do I have the right to decide who and what charities I want to work with, you know, what, who I want to help and uh, how I want to help versus being forced at gunpoint? That's the bottom line in my ideology. You know, there are those who want to be left alone and those who just won't leave them alone. You know, that kind of thing. In other words, leave me be, and I will um, help along with a lot of others. We're always very good in this town when there's a disaster, helping people out of their disaster here. And uh, but, but the bottom line is, is that there are some people out there, Brian, that are honest enough. 
you cannot reason with them. I go back to a, a quote from um, when I don't. It's on my website, but I don't have it on the computer right in front of me right now. But it 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 it's something to the effect that um, you know there are people that will wear your arguments, and um, while all the while while they're wearing your arguments and making it sound like they think like you or they um, or they. Um, you know they speak like you, but yet all the all the while they're working behind the scenes, undermining everything you're trying to do. Wow. Well, you know there are some people who are determined, you know, to do uh, works of darkness, and uh, you know I think it's necessary for good people to stand up against that. But I, I go back to what Mike McGarry or Mike Meharry rather said about uh, the the people who are there who are. I don't know if, if vacillating is the right word, but but who haven't really committed. They just they want to be a part of something. They see a need, but they're not sure which direction to go. I I would just I would rather have somebody like you or somebody like me be there at that time when when they are accepting new truth to help give them a gentle nudge in the right direction. Right. And the thing that I will point out here, it's not that I want to see people, for example, not get the help they need. But on the other hand, um, this becomes a problem, too. This is why churches are a lot more careful now than they used to be about lending help to people because, you know, what do you do? You see somebody drive up, and they claim they're poor, but they drive up in a, uh, in a luxury brand-new Cadillac or something. Do you, uh, you know, do you uh, extend your ministry to them, and how do you do that? I mean, that's a perfect case in point. Our biggest problem is immorality. If we can get that straight, you know, if we can get that straight and start understanding that if you expect to get help, you're going to have to be honest with people. And because we have so much dishonesty, be prepared to go through a few background checks before people lend a hand. I mean, it's like renting apartments. Uh, we had a couple here um, that we know here in town, uh, Brian, that had uh, a person who they rented to, and they had it turned out to be an alcoholic in the end, and they had a heck of a time getting rid of him, getting him out of there. Now, fortunately, he didn't destroy the property. I mean, it was a mess by the time he got done as far as cleanliness. But the main point I'm trying to get out of all this is you can't blame people that own apartments and stuff for trying to protect their investment either. And this is another side of it that we need to look at. Okay, Sam, thank you so much for your call. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we have in common with the Roman Empire, particularly the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. If you've already read Gibbon's magnificent book, you probably know the answer. If you haven't, stick around. I think you're going to find this interesting. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, complete show notes can be found at your leisure at thebrianhydeshow.com. We are making the rounds of all the better uh, podcast platforms. Little by little, this little podcast and broadcast is growing, and, and uh, there's some exciting news. It's, it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be back on in my old stomping grounds in southern Utah very, very soon. Back on the air on KDXU. This will be a weekend rebroadcast of some of the episodes that you can catch during the week. But uh, very, very excited. And uh, tip of the hat to uh, Andy Griffin and all the folks who've helped to make that possible. They're uh, on my old stomping grounds, the big 890 in St. George, Utah. Let's talk about uh, Rome's 
Last Gasps and Searching for a Way Out. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, compares the United States to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now, some people are going to get offended. How dare you suggest that somehow this great country is in decline? But, I mean, have you looked around? <laughs> this is... This is uh, I'm trying to think of a of a nice uh, G-rated way to put this. It's been uh, it's been a crap show. This year has been one of the years where where a lot of the fractures and a lot of the the fraying around the edges really have become visible to the point that even with the most rose-colored lenses one can find, you just can't deny that we are seeing an unraveling taking place right before our eyes. And the, the interesting thing about this is we're not the first great civilization to, to go through this kind of thing. We're making many of the same mistakes that other great civilizations before us have made. But we want to believe we're the exception. Oh, yeah, well, they, they were stupid or they were primitive and they didn't know what we know. But the thing is, they knew plenty. And you would think by studying history, we would know plenty to avoid making many of those same mistakes. And yet here we are. Annie Holmquist starts with a blunt question heading a Mother Jones article. How do you know if you're living through the death of an empire? And she says, a friend recently brought this article to my attention, although it was written in March of 2020 when the COVID-19 virus was still novel and seclusion at home rather than rioting in the streets was the norm. She said the piece hit on some very interesting observations about the state of our civilization with an election looming. Unrest in our cities and the COVID boogeyman luring at us around every corner. It seems like our nation is ready to topple. Yet, as author Patrick Wyman explains in the aforementioned article, quote, if an empire seems to topple overnight, it's certain that the conditions that produced the outcome had been present for a long time, separating wounds that finally turned septic enough for the patient to succumb to a sudden trauma. End quote. Now, challenges come to every nation, writes Wyman, but whether a state crumbles beneath those challenges depends on the strength of the foundation. A house may be in disarray and maybe need some serious cosmetic changes, but if the bones are good, it's salvageable. So how is the structure of America's house? Are its bones strong or are they in the final stages of osteoporosis? And I love the fact that Annie Holmquist turned to Will Durant's assessment of the decline of Rome. This is where she went for reference. In his 1994, make that 1944 work, Caesar and Christ, Durant lists the influx of barbarians, a decline of resources, and the poverty that accompanied the latter as likely contributors to the empire's collapse. But then he throws a curveball into the mix. Population decline. This decline came from several sources, including, surprise, surprise, the slaughters of pestilence, revolution, and war. One plague alone managed to wipe out 5,000 individuals per day for a while in Rome. Now, comparing those numbers to the death toll the U.S. has experienced during COVID, our lot doesn't look so bad. Annie Holmquist says, but the greater cause of population decline, according to Durant, was family limitation. The spread of infanticide, the avoidance or deferment of marriage, the increase in sexual excesses, and the making of eunuchs all contributed. Even leaving aside our modern practice of abortion, she says these practices all have a familiar ring in modern-day America. Who has not heard troubled whispers about the U.S. marriage rate, which reached a new low in 2018, or the enthusiasm for puberty blockers and surgeries, creating eunuchs of teens caught up in the transgender trend? 
Besides population decline, Durant cites economic and political issues as further causes of Rome's decline. Particularly prescient is his statement on the latter. Quote, the political causes of decay were of decay rather were rooted in one fact that increasing despotism destroyed the citizens' civic sense and dried up statesmanship at its source. Powerless to express his political will except by violence, the Roman lost interest in government and became absorbed in his business, his amusements, his legion, or his individual salvation. Could the increasing despotism exhibited through the ever-growing number of American regulations and governmental demands over the years escalating further be escalating further via heavy-handed responses to the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Could it be one source of the violence that we've seen in recent weeks? She asks, does the average American, having little love for his country to begin with, now have even less interest in its well-being? Is he only eager to have some sort of outlet to express his rage at being overlooked and slighted by the ruling class? I think those are fair questions. And she asks, how do we get out of this mess? Well, Durant offers some intriguing food for thought on that issue by examining the role Christianity played in the fall of Rome. Durant writes, the greatest of historians held that Christianity was the chief cause of Rome's fall. Yet he takes issue with this idea, saying that the growth of Christianity was more of an effect than a cause of Rome's decay. Men lost faith in the state, not because Christianity held them aloof, but because they saw chaos, turmoil, and injustice, the state's leadership caused, the state's inept leadership caused, and they decided to seek peace and hope elsewhere. So Annie Holmquist says it doesn't take a genius to see that we're headed down the same track Rome took hundreds of years ago. Americans are tired, worn thin by perceived injustices and desiring change, but unsure where to turn to find it. The Romans abandoned hope in their nation, Instead, finding hope, as Durant suggests, in Christianity. And she asks the question, is such a thing possible for America? I can't answer that question for you, but I think that's a fair question to ask. Where are we likely to find a form of salvation? You know my take is it's not going to be politics. I think politics is, is likely to just keep exacerbating the situation till we really are at one another's throats, even more so than we see today. Now, if you're saying, well, then what are you suggesting, Brian? Are you suggesting we, we throw religion into the mix? I don't think it can hurt, at least from the standpoint that religion relies on persuasion rather than for force or coercion in order to, uh, to advance its objectives. But more importantly, I think that the, the benefit that religion brings is if you are trying to instill morality in large groups of people, not against their will, but with their consent, it's a pretty good way to go. George Washington felt the same way. I think he was a pretty wise guy, and I don't disagree with him on this. But it's got to be voluntary. It's got to be something that's chosen by individuals rather than, well, as a voting block, we've decided this is what we're going to do. People who are capable of self-governance, which is really what religion encourages, isn't it? Govern your passions, govern, you know, your desire to get ahead by stealing or lying or coveting or that sort of stuff. People who are capable of self-governance don't need a lot of outside government force 
to help them stay in line. They don't need a lot of outside government regulation and manipulation to keep the peace. Because they freely choose to be virtuous people. And as much as we'd like to think, well, there's got to be some way we can make society a little bit more like that. There is, but you're not going to like the answer because it starts with the individual. Meaning you've got to be okay with letting other people make mistakes or choose things that you would not choose. Now, that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all and they get to harm other people or their property. After all, we still believe in justice. If you cause harm and there's a victim, a person needs to be held to account for that. But if you want to see people's hearts change, you got to start with your own, get your house in order, and by the power of example, see if you can draw some other people along with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks for joining us on The Brian Hyde Show today. We'll open up the phone lines again in a few moments. 801-331-8113. I want to take a minute here and I want to welcome a new sponsor to the program. And that would be the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You want to talk about a neat little success story here. Patriot Home Mortgage was started by Russ Brown, I don't remember how many years ago, but it started in little old St. George, Utah, and since has grown into a powerhouse 23 states strong. They're very, very knowledgeable, very competitive, and I specifically want to steer you to the Staples-Turner team who can get the job done for you. They have a lot of experience, and whether you need a new purchase loan, whether you're looking to do a refinance, they are the ones to help you. So if you are interested, here's what you need to do. Go to staplesmortgage.com. Staples, just like it sound, sounds, mortgage.com. Staplesmortgage.com. Tell them, hey, I heard Brian talking about you. Uh, I've been a friend of John's for many, many years. This is a guy who I would absolutely trust, and I give him my highest recommendation and my personal endorsement. If, uh, if you're looking for something mortgage-wise, this is the guy you should be talking to. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what happens when somebody comes at you with their cell phone out and filming. Now, I know you're a mild-mannered person. You're probably the kind of person who wouldn't make any kind of trouble for anybody, right? But let's just suppose that, uh, for instance, you see someone coming at you with their cell phone out. They seem intent. They seem agitated. And suddenly you are in danger of getting canceled. Now, this may sound a little bit paranoid, it may sound a little bit far-fetched, but it's happened to people who really intended to do nothing wrong, but they find themselves being accosted by a social justice warrior, and they find themselves getting canceled. And I love the parallel in this article. I'm going to link to this in the show notes. This is uh, an article by High Jinx. I love that uh, pen name, by the way. Remaining in the Shadow of the Spectacle says, more and more frequently, videos of whites who've made some sort of racist transgression are being filmed by valiant, brave people of color and getting canceled. This isn't necessarily new, but the consequences of these videos have been rapidly escalating to the point where being filmed alongside a juicy enough narrative can actually get you arrested. And all of these cases have one thing in common, and that is the person being canceled has been approached by someone with a phone. Listen to this parallel. The Maoists in China didn't have smartphones. 
ours do. Therefore, it's important to know how to react if you are approached by a red guard that is recording you. You must understand immediately that if someone you don't know approaches you with their phone out filming you, the likely, the likely explanation is they're trying to get you canceled. How do they do this? They get a reaction. So it's important to keep this in mind, perhaps more, that if a journalist approaches you this way, you should be attempting to find the nearest place they can't legally enter, like maybe a public restroom. But with civilians, it's a little more complicated. Cancel culture until recently has been almost an extreme, almost exclusively extrajudicial process. So legal action regarding this scenario won't happen unless you A, physically push, shove, or attack the recorder, or B, they do this to you. But since they have a camera out, they're obviously not looking to harm you physically at that moment. Drawing a weapon, that's the worst thing you can do. Like we've seen, they'll probably just start arresting you if you do this. So that's not going to work. So maybe you want to give them the finger. Well, the person recording you is going to claim you called them a racial slur, made a transphobic remark, etc. And there you are on camera being racist or transphobic again, thus affirming their claim. You lose your job. Dang. Let's try again. Maybe you say something along the lines of, no, I'm not racist. You're lying. And the person recording responds, well, then why did you cut me off and call me the N-word? It's the classic, have you stopped beating your wife at shtick? This makes you angrier and you continue to argue. In fact, you get so angry, you start to lecture the red guard and walk forward. They walk backward and ask why you're following them. They plead you to stay away. You just fell for the oldest trick in the book. Canceled again. So here's the takeaway. There is only one way to deal with the red guard in this scenario. You have to ignore them. Assume the video they take of you will be posted online. But let's consider what people online are going to see and how the media would attempt to present the story. First of all, the article says, let's break down what happened with the Seattle Karen meltdown. Now, we have no solid, solid context. And there's a link to this, by the way, so you can actually follow it and see for yourself what, what's being talked about. The Red Guard starts recording after having followed Karen home. Now, if she had merely gotten out of her car, ignored him and went into her apartment, nothing happens. Imagine if he follows her all the way inside her apartment complex and tries to even follow her into her own apartment. See, now she has a lawsuit. And the author says, I'm not sure if legal action is a realistic option anymore, but that's not the point. Instead, let's figure out why Karen reacted the way she did. Did she react hysterically because she was racist and merely being confronted by a black man was a great terror to her? Of course not. Instead, she knew that she was getting canceled. And the guy knew that if he could get a reaction, he would get a lot of fame. In other words, status. So that's the key word. Reactions. Reactions are the lifeblood of the media. Reactions create different reactions. And the only bad reaction is no reaction. Now, the author here says, if I'm a media outlet, I love my isms, my sexisms, my racisms, and so on. I want stories that show how prevalent the isms are still in our society. I want heinous, gruesome demonstrations of them. I want a white woman calling the cops on an innocent black man. I want a woman having a panic attack because someone films her license plate. I want videos that have a glorious moment, which can be spun into a quick two-minute two minute video for Twitter. If I'm really lucky... I might even get some real violence that allows me to report on a hate crime. A long, drawn-out video of someone following a random person, calling them racist, and ultimately never getting a reaction isn't interesting. There's no moment. There's no reaction to generate a reaction. So let's recap. 
if someone you don't know approaches you with a phone or you see someone you don't know recording you from a distance, turn the opposite direction and walk away. They're attempting to get a reaction out of you. Ignore them as much as possible and leave the vicinity as fast as you can. Never under any circumstance engage them. Always ignore them and walk away. So that person posts a video online calling you a racist. If you give no reaction, the media can't do anything with it. And your employer or college won't do anything with it. You've done nothing wrong. And the video shows you doing nothing wrong. Immediately, 99% of people are no longer interested. If there is no protagonist and antagonist, interest is lost. Yes, you are being antagonized, but you're not behaving properly as one. Good antagonists are exciting. They create exciting moments you can post online. Bad antagonists are boring. Nobody wants to watch a boring antagonist. Nobody cares about one. It's very interesting. They give a couple of examples here about Hitler and Goebbels were good antagonists. Why? Well, the media loved them because they were Nazis that talked like Nazis and behaved like Nazis. And they ranted and raved and pounded the podiums on any newsreel. People immediately recognized them as the antagonists. The image itself generated interest. But nobody talks about Albert Speer because he wasn't exciting. The only way most people would even care about him is by placing a photo or clip of him next to Hitler. The character of Speer, antagonist, is only relevant in the context of Hitler, antagonist. And in that same sense, a stormtrooper is only understood as a threat as an antagonist with the character of Emperor, Emperor Palpatine. That's the level of infantilization media consumers are subjected to and treated as. The Third Reich is the Empire. If you talk about Nazis, you may as well be talking about the Empire and vice versa. The threat they pose and headspace they occupy for the consumer are the exact same. Fictional. Consumers are able to do this because they understand the image of an antagonist. So Karen calling the police is something an antagonist does. It fits into the media narrative. Guns are something that antagonists have. That fits into the media narrative. An angry boomer in a MAGA hat yelling and pointing a finger at the person of color behind the camera is something antagonists look like and fits the narrative. Someone ignoring the camera, acting like the person behind it isn't there, that doesn't ring any bells. That's a boring image. And the point here is we want to be boring. And it's important that our family and friends know that they need to be boring. While we may realize this, many people just want to argue with the worms attempting to ruin their lives. Understandably so. But that's just not the country we live in anymore. It's a greater act of defiance to refuse the media a story, and it's better to provide for your family than to lose your job or go to jail just because some Maoist brat wants to farm some dopamine on Twitter. Make sure your, your relatives, particularly the older ones, understand this. I think this is pretty sound advice. It just makes me a little bit sick to my stomach to think that we are actually in a day and age where this is the kind of advice that needs to be shared. But just like online trolls thrive on getting a reaction, deny them the reaction. Don't reward them with a reaction. I know it's hard to do. It takes self-control. But as you walk away, not having given them the reaction... Perhaps you can reflect, hey, that took a lot of self-control to do that. Try not to break your arm patting yourself on the back, but yes, that is what a mature person would do. And best of all, you deny them that reaction that they desperately need to make themselves relevant. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I really hope you will check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for the show notes for August 3rd. That's today. And you'll find links to all the stories that I've been able to cover, including some that I haven't been able to get to just yet. I'm going to hustle here in the, the remaining segment that we have here. James Bovard, an excellent and informed commentator, has a great piece on intellectualtakeout.org. Political legitimacy dies in 2020. Now, I know it's easy to jump to a conclusion. Well, it's because the Democrats are running Joe Biden and the Republicans are running Donald Trump. And OK, that may be part of it, but that's really not the reason why. Listen to how James Bovard explains it. He says the American political system may be on the eve of its worst legitimacy crisis since the Civil War. Early warning signals indicate that many states could suffer catastrophic failures in counting votes in November. The election will occur amidst a vast economic devastation inflicted by a political class that responded to COVID by seizing almost unlimited power. And deep state federal agencies have already proven that they will trample the law to sabotage election results. He says America could soon see a hundred times worse replay of the Florida presidential balloting 20 years ago in the Bush-Gore showdown. Some Florida counties had antiquated voting equipment, while others had harebrained ballot designs that confounded voters. The Florida Supreme Court ordered a manual recount of disputed votes, but the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, stopped the recount because it could result in a cloud upon what George W. Bush claims to be the legitimacy of his election. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote, Two days, two days the same Supreme Court uh, majority blocked any subsequent recounting because it was, quote, not well calculated to sustain the confidence that all citizens must have in the outcome of elections. Unfortunately, legitimacy blocked or legitimacy via blocked recounts may also be the epithet for the 2020 presidential election. Now, Bovard says because of the pandemic, many states are switching primarily to mail-in voting, even though experiences with recent primaries were a disaster. In New York City, city officials are still struggling to count mail-in ballots from the June primary. Up to 20% of ballots were declared invalid before even being opened, based on mistakes with their exterior envelopes. The Washington Post is the one who noted that, thanks largely to things like missing postmarks or signatures. In Wisconsin, more than 20,000 primary ballots were thrown out because voters missed at least one line on the form, rendering them invalid. Now, some states are mailing ballots to all the names on the voting lists, providing thousands of dead people the chance to vote from the grave. President Trump claims the shift to mail-in voting could result in the most corrupt vote in our nation's history. Now, James Bovard says Trump is often wrong on issues, but even a New York Daily News article tagged the recent primary results a dumpster fire. Delayed election results and potentially millions of disputed ballots could minimize support for whoever is designated the next president. Elections supposedly choose which candidates are selected to follow the law and uphold the Constitution. But COVID shutdown dictates vividly how, power, how political power is now practically unlimited. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer prohibited all public and private gatherings of any size, prohibiting people from visiting friends. It also prohibited purchasing seeds for spring planting 
in stores after she decreed that a non-essential activity. Oregon Governor Kate Brown banned the state's 4 million residents from leaving their homes except for essential work, buying food and other narrow exemptions, and also banned all recreational travel, even though her state had almost zero COVID cases. In the name of reducing risks, politicians entitled themselves to destroy tens of millions of jobs. Permitting governors to shut down churches was not on the ballot, but that didn't stop many states from banning worship services at the same time politicians cheered mass protests that scorned stay-at-home orders. Now, James Bovard says the media has often whitewashed the damage from COVID power grabs in part because every restriction was supposedly justified by science, in quotation marks. After New York Governor Andrew Cuomo dictated that nursing homes must admit COVID patients, more than 6,000 elderly nursing home residents were killed by the coronavirus. Cuomo has yet to reveal which science textbook spawned this policy, which several other states also imposed. Were those state governments grossly incompetent or were they murderous? It doesn't matter because Trump made rude comments about NIH honcho and media darling Anthony Fauci. What's the point of voting for politicians who merely need to invoke dubious statistical extrapolations to sow death and economic devastation? Finally, he asks, does the presidential election even matter? Deep state federal agencies are a Godzilla that have established their prerogative to undermine, if not overturn, election results. The FBI has achieved saint-like status among many liberals for its efforts to topple Trump. For almost three years, the nation's political life was roiled by an investigation driven by false allegations that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia in the 2016 election. As George Washington University professor Jonathan Turley observed last week, the media continues to ignore one of the biggest stories in decades. The Obama administration targeted the campaign of the opposing party based on false evidence. Obama officials who exploited the CIA and other intelligence agencies to illicitly target Trump campaign officials have laughed all the way to the million-dollar book advances. During the Trump impeachment effort, the establishment media openly cheered the deep state. New York Times columnist James Stewart assured readers that secretive agencies work for the American people. New York Times editorial writer Michelle Cottle hailed the deep state as a collection of patriotic public servants. And Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson captured the Beltway's verdict, God bless the deep state. Now, the media has almost completely abandoned its watchdog role, and its veneration will make it easier for the FBI, CIA, and National Security Agency to ravage not just elections, but also Americans' rights and liberties in the coming years. Even before the voting starts, surveys show that for the first time, a majority of Americans, 55%, are dissatisfied with their system of government. That's according to The Atlantic. The percentage of Americans who expressed trust in government in Washington has fallen from 73% in 1958 to only 17% now. That's according to the Pew Research Center. But those numbers could quickly become far more ominous for our political ruling class. What happens if Trump continues to repel not only many potential voters, but then Biden comes along in the presidential debates as clueless and doddering, as did special counsel Robert Mueller in a congressional hearing last July? How many Americans will feel forced to choose between a scoundrel and an idiot? James Bovard says many pundits and professors presume that a Biden victory in November will magically re-legitimize the American political system. 
but almost all the problems of recent years will continue or intensify. The Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration, both of which horribly botched the nation's response to COVID, will continue bollocksing public health crises. U.S. foreign policy will continue to be reckless and self-defeating, and the American pretensions to global hegemony becoming ever more ludicrous. Deficit spending will continue to spin out of control, spiraling closer to the day when the Federal Reserve's sorcery fails to entrance financial markets. Unfortunately, both Democrats and Republicans appear willing to bankrupt the nation to perpetuate their own power. Now, James Bovard concludes by saying federal legitimacy hinges on the Constitution. But he says there's not a snowball's chance in hell that either Trump or Biden will make America constitutional again. As Thomas Jefferson declared in 1786, an elective despotism was not the government we fought for. What's the point of voting if government under the law is not a choice on Election Day? Wow, that is. That's a really relevant question. American political legitimacy will continue plummeting as long as politicians scorn any legal and constitutional limits on their power. I don't know about you, but that question, what's the point of voting if government under the law is really not a choice on Election Day? Kind of sucks the wind right out of my sails. And I've not been a big fan of voting as a means of changing anything. I just I don't think I've ever seen anybody put it quite as plainly as James Bovard does in that one question. Now, mind you, I'm not saying, therefore, you shouldn't go and vote. But perhaps we should take a little bit of time to evaluate whether that is the be-all, end-all, you know, the the panacea of, of our civic duty to get out there and vote. See, I'm of the opinion that maybe there's more that we could and should be doing outside of the voting booth. In fact, I'll just go on the record and say I think it's what we do uh, between those times that we're standing in that voting booth that really have the greatest impact on what kind of a system of governance we have. What are you doing to make government obsolete in as many areas of your life as possible? What are you doing to make as much of your life voluntary as opposed to coerced? Yeah, it takes courage. And you might have to uh, swim upstream against a tide of people who have been trained. Oh, this is the way it has to be. You're out of step. Do you have the courage to keep swimming? To do your own thing? Well, that's what I'm here for. To help you make that decision and stick with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.